Let us begin with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee and we praise Thee for the gift of Thy Son, Jesus Christ, in the holy and life-giving Eucharist. We pray Thee, O Lord, that we would receive it in faith, and that we may be nourished by His presence, His life, and the benefits of His death and resurrection. And this we pray in His holy name. Amen. So we continue our study put out jointly by the, our province, the Anglican Church in North America, and the North American Lutheran Church, a biblically Orthodox Lutheran uh, denomination. What is Holy Communion? We believe that at the heart of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. In the totality of his incarnation, death, and resurrection. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 14. So we begin that Jesus Christ himself, the person of Jesus, in his totality, is the heart of the gospel. As the word, Jesus Christ is the principal subject of Scripture and now speaks through Scripture. And now speaks to us through Scripture. I heard um, in the conference uh, I attended after the meetings this past week in British Columbia, one of the speakers said, uh, the, the word of God is living. God continually speaks to the world, the church, and to us personally through his word. He said, but it's a PDF document, not a word document. You can't change it. <laughs> and I thought, that's a, that's a clever way, right? So it's living, but it's not, it's always the same, and yet always being spoken anew into our hearts. So it's God's word, but it's PDF, okay? I forget his name, but... Still, he now speaks to us through Scripture. As the word, Jesus gives his flesh and blood to us, broken and poured out in the Lord's Supper. So it is Jesus who gives us his very life, his very body, his blood, to feed us with the gift of himself and the benefits of, as this is, the totality of his person, his incarnation, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And as we saw oh, um, the last time, I believe, uh, even a partaking in the resurrection of the body on the last day. As St. Ignatius of Antioch said, the medicine of immortality. Point number three of the document, we believe that word and sacrament are the source and summit of our life together as the church, the body of Christ in the world. I probably have done a poor job in articulating it if I've ever come across that I'm concerned as the priest about numbers. You know, how many are here? We need to get that up. The real concern, however, that I, didn't, that I articulated poorly is this, and I hopefully can state it better now. It's not, just, it's not about numbers, per se. It's about the fact that uh, uh, John and Jane Doe, who are missing and have been for a few weeks, let's say, um, they are missing out on Jesus in word and sacrament. And so if we truly believe that within the gathered community, Christ is truly present for us in a special way through the proclamation of the word and in a special way in the sacrament of his body and blood, then our hearts should be saddened maybe even mournful to not see people in our own family, church family, um, 
longing and hungering to meet Jesus in that special way through word and sacrament. So what I miss most when I miss people in church on Sunday is that they're missing out on Jesus in that special way. Now, Jesus comes to us in many ways, right? He comes to us in prayer. You always hear people that will say, <clears throat> I can experience Jesus while walking on the, uh, the beach by the ocean or on the mountaintop. And when I served in the Midwest, I used to respond, well, if you can find, find a mountaintop or a beach that borders the ocean, fine. Otherwise, I'll see you in church on Sunday. <laughs> <clears throat> But there are many ways in, in the stranger, in ministry, that we encounter Jesus. But there are primary means through which Jesus communicates himself to us and invites us in a special way into his heart and life. Okay? And that's through Christian fellowship when we gather in his name and within that fellowship in word and sacrament. And our hearts, we should pray every day, Lord, help me to hunger for your presence in word and sacrament. To hunger for you in that special way that you come. Now, there's many ways for a husband and wife to communicate with one another, right? They can text one another, though no, no text before marriage. The Bible's clear on that. Thank you. Um, they, you know, they can text, they can phone one another, they can Skype, right? They can hold hands, they can go for a walk, right? But there's also a primary means which God gave for a husband and wife to communicate to live out their spiritual union. You missed it, Dan. I tell you, she, she, she. <laughs> that's it. We start over. <laughs> yeah. In the beginning. Right? There's a primary means, right? Everyone knows what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Hopefully, Sarah, good girl. Sarah, my daughter, who's, she has no idea what I'm talking about. And for that, I give thanks to Almighty God. Yeah. Right. And they, they're, they're not the same, right? I mean, having a phone conversation is not the same as the primary means in which God gave for a husband and wife, man and woman, joined in that sacred union to come together. So it is that there's many ways for us to commune with God, but the primary means is within the worship of the church. Word and sacrament coming together. That's where we encounter. That's why we should mourn somewhat when we don't see our church family members next to us in the pews. Right? Or the stranger on the street who doesn't know that Jesus is waiting for him inside these doors to enter into their life and to receive them into his life in that way that he may dwell in us and we in him as the scriptures and as the prayer book says, right? And so, um, you know, this whole idea that, you know, the world is perishing apart from salvation in Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into judgment. I, I like to leave judgment to the one uh, to whom it belongs, and that is Jesus. But we are to share the gospel as if the whole world is perishing. Because no one has earned their salvation. It is a free gift from God in Jesus Christ. And so we should mourn those who are perishing and desire to see them not perish and to come to know Jesus and to partake of him and his life and the benefits of his death and resurrection, as this document says, the totality of his person, the totality of the incarnation, 
in word and sacrament. Now, some churches, it's, the, the emphasis is very much on word um, and very little, if any, on, on sacrament. Right? In others, the emphasis is on the sacrament, but not so much encountering the presence of Christ in the word. Right? Anglicans and Lutherans are very much word and sacrament. Word and sacrament. Okay. So that's very important. We believe that word and sacrament are the source and summit of our life together as the church, the body of Christ in the world. In the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Christ grants communion with himself in his body and blood. Together, word and sacrament constitute the central act of the church's worship. And in this world, there's nothing greater than communing with God in worship. And word and sacrament is the, the summit of that worship. This is why we partake of Holy Communion uh, in the Eucharist every Sunday and here at Holy Trinity uh, during the week. The Lord's Supper is also known as the Sacrament of the Altar, Holy Communion, the Divine Liturgy, the Mass, the Sacred Mysteries, the Holy Supper, the Eucharist, Food for Souls. One of my favorites I already mentioned, the Medicine of Immortality, the Breaking of Bread, the Heavenly Banquet, and the bread of heaven. Why so many titles? Because it is such a great thing that no one or two or three titles can sufficiently articulate the, what it is um, or who it is that we are partaking of in that great sacrament. Right. I actually have 30 names myself. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it says right here that's not true. Okay. Um, questions before or thoughts before we forge ahead, and try to speak loudly if you do. Um, people have written me saying that they it's very hard for them to hear. Well, that's a good question. No, you didn't hear anything because no one said anything. Okay. So, biblical foundations. Are you ready? I'm going to give you one to look up in a minute, and someone else, if you can get ready. Okay. Um, Jesus himself instituted the Lord's Supper as a meal offering, as a meal offering the people of God forgiveness. Matthew twenty six twenty eight. Inner renewal. Luke twenty four thirty five. And eternal life, John six, fifty one to fifty eight. A foretaste of the heavenly banquet, Revelation nineteen nine and says in nineteen seven. Jesus is the host and presider at every Eucharistic celebrations, Hebrews two seventeen, four fourteen. So it is Jesus who is the host, and we are invited into his home to sup with him at his table. And it is he who presides. This is why, and, and some would disagree with this, but this is my theological understanding, why um, for most of the church's history, one would receive Holy Communion um, from the ordained person because the idea was that they were a living icon of Christ as priest. And as the priest himself as groom who's gathered to, to himself his bride. And so um, you're actually receiving from the hand of Christ. It's Christ who is giving you Holy Communion. And what is it that he gives you? 
himself, Christ. And of course, when we receive, you know the old phrase, you are what you eat, you become by grace, not by nature, but by grace, Christ. And so it's all about Christ in the Eucharist. I remember uh, being taught this by my mom and dad when, it was, when I was very little. And they, I had a book on Holy Communion. And, you know, you'd see the little boy, you know, there kneeling at the altar rail, right? And, and it, you'd see the priest in the priestly vestments. Of course, each vestment represents something of Christ and the gospel. But then when you looked at the face of the priest, it was Jesus, right? It was Jesus who was giving you Holy Communion. Jesus is the host and presider at every Eucharistic celebration. Those who may receive are those who have been baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Why? Because, and a lot of people misunderstand this, and they say, well, we should give Holy Communion to the unbaptized, and the church right from the very beginning, based on the scripture, said, no, the unbaptized must not receive, um, because of the warnings in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10 and 11, of those who receive without discerning the body, you know, eat and drink their condemnation to themselves, right? But also because it's in baptism that we're spiritually joined to Christ, and then Holy Communion is what nourishes that union with Christ. It is in Holy Communion that um, that union with Christ is nourished, expressed, articulated, nurtured, nourished, realized. Right? Uh, one must be born in order to be fed in that way. Right? And so you are baptized and then you are nourished with that heavenly food to continue that life which has begun in baptism. Is everyone with me with that? Okay. I've used this example a couple of weeks ago, so I'll just touch on it briefly again. Um, <clears throat> if you think of, of baptism as, as, the, as the marriage with Christ, we become part of the bride of Christ, then the Holy Eucharist is um, the, like the coming together of the bride and the groom uh, on, uh, in that special way, right? And so first you're united spiritually in holy matrimony, and then the other, and I'll explain this all to you when you're 40, the other is meant to nourish, nurture, express, articulate, realize, live out that spiritual union in a physical way. So in one sense, having Holy Communion prior to baptism is like having sexual relations prior to marriage. It's fornication. Because first you're joined to Christ, and then that is lived out, physically, tangibly, by receiving Holy Communion. Does this make sense to everyone? Any questions? Yes, that's an excellent question, actually, Rob. The, what the question is, is you're baptized, and for many people that takes place when they are an infant, and then there's this great span of time prior to receiving Holy Communion. Um, in the early church, this was not so. In the early church, uh, one would be uh, baptized uh, into Christ and um, would immediately 
be sealed with the Holy Spirit through the chrism consecrated by the bishop, and then uh, that new life would be nourished with the sacrament. So if whether you were an adult or an infant, you would be baptized and then immediately chrismated and then immediately given Holy Communion. And so there was never a time in your life um, in Christ, uh, even if baptized as a child, where you were not fully in Christ and were not fully being nourished with the life of Christ. And then through catechesis, you would grow up understanding a little bit more fully um, every day, every week, month, year, etc., um, what it is that uh, God has blessed you with in these sacred mysteries. In the West, what happened was they, um, they were reluctant as the church grew. The bishops couldn't be present um, all the time. And they were reluctant to consecrate the chrism and have the priest administer what we would call in the West Confirmation or in the East Chrismation. So they said, wait until the bishop comes. Well, over the centuries, that distance between baptism and chrismation or confirmation grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. Okay? And so... Um, there are some who follow the model known um, by um, some um, old, I've got to be careful here, but uh, slightly more mature Anglicans in age, okay, um, that they were baptized as babies, and then they were confirmed much later, and then they received Holy Communion. So you were still following the, the ancient order of things, you were baptized, then confirmed, then given Holy Communion. But it was separated out over a great number of years. Then um, one answer was the, the Roman Catholic answer, is the, they took Holy Communion and put it to about the age of eight. So you've lost that ancient order of baptism, chrismation, slash confirmation, Holy Communion. And you went from baptism, slight delay, Holy Communion, slight delay, confirmation. Um, Anglicans now, many are attempting to return to the ancient way of doing things. So, for example, both of my daughters were baptized as babies, um, were immediately chrismated by oil consecrated by the bishop, and immediately given Holy Communion. And they've never known a time in their life that they remember when they weren't full members in Christ and welcomed at his altar. I, I think so, too. Um, um, you know, now people will say, well, then what's confirmation? Well, confirmation, the bishop can still come and they can make a, pub a public profession of that which they received and say, um, I'm receiving this faith personally and the bishop lays hands for the stirring up of the, of the Holy Spirit within them, right? And there's still that connection with the bishop, and it's, it's uh, still a good thing. But I'm in favor of returning to the practice of the very ancient church. So uh, if a child is, is born in baptism, it, it the he or she has to be fed, right? And so... You wouldn't spiritually starve them for those years. So, excellent question. I like you said maybe it was naive. If that's naive, I want more naive questions. <laughs> Any others? Okay, we'll continue. You know, and and I think you know, not that we can base our theology on experience or emotion, but. You know, people say, well, I get concerned about children who don't know what they're doing receiving Holy Communion. And, and yet, I worry more about adults receiving Holy Communion sometimes than the children. I've seen little children put out their hands and say, Jesus, please. I've seen little kids whose parents decided to wait kind of to a first Holy Communion time longing to, to receive Jesus. I think about that little boy last night I mentioned in the sermon. You know, you like Jesus Christ, you know, 
And I said, yes, I like Jesus. I love Jesus, right? Um, and you could see it in his eyes that he did too. And he was maybe three and a half, four at the most. I mean, so that was pretty cool, right? You know, all right. The biblical foundations for the Lord's Supper are Matthew 26, 26 to 29, Mark 14, 22 to 25, Luke 22, 13 to 20, and 1 Corinthians 10, 16 to 22, and then 11, 23 to 24. And we went over most of these in the weeks uh, earlier. And um, also, I would mention... Um, John chapter 6 as well, the bread of life. Point 7 in the document. The Lord's Supper has its roots in the Jewish Passover history and worship. However, in the Lord's Supper, Jesus instituted a New Testament, a new covenant, received by faith in his words, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you, that is given for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28, Mark 14, 24. And so if you think about the Passover, uh, a lot of people think the Passover is primarily when they passed from Egypt through the Red Sea and into the wilderness. And that is certainly a very significant part of the Passover. But the name Passover primarily comes from the blood of the lambs that were put over the doorposts so that the angel of death would pass them by and not come into their home. And so Jesus then says, my blood is the blood of the new covenant, the New Testament. Well, what is the covenant but our relationship with God. You think of the covenant of holy matrimony between a man and a woman, right? Um, and so Jesus is saying, in this broken bread, in this blessed cup, we, I am establishing the new covenant, the way in which you will relate to God and God to you. And it's in him, in Jesus, in Jesus. And it all has to do with that act of Holy Communion. I mean, it's really incredible. Um, these debates over the presence of Jesus, I find them unfathomable. I mean, why would you argue about this when you just look a little deep more deeply you know, at what it is that we're being given? What an honor. What a blessing to uh, share in Christ in this special way, right? You know, Your Honor, I'm speaking for myself, you almost have to be blind and deaf not to see that from, from the very beginning because mm -hmm. it is so clear that the Lamb, you know, in Egypt, it's yeah. so clear that that is Jesus. Amen. Right, the foreshadowing is so obvious uh, there, right? And so when we receive Holy Communion, we become partakers of a new Passover in Jesus where we are delivered from eternal death and brought in to eternal life. And that is being communicated and given to us and expressed and in this sacred act. I mean, how incredible. And people say, well, why do you fast before you receive Holy Communion? Isn't that a Roman Catholic thing? No, number one, fasting is a biblical thing. But I want to fast so that I am reminded to hunger for that special presence of Christ in his Holy Word and Sacrament, which takes place within the gathering of the community. Although I have to admit, this morning, for some reason, I was particularly hungry, and I did think about coffee hour a little bit, too. Um, so 
that's, but that's the humanity, right? That's the human uh, side of it, right? But we are to hunger for the... Jesus didn't say debate over what I said, right? He said, take, eat, take, drink. That's what we are to do. Point eight, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper carries a command, do this for the remembrance of me. And I taught on this prior to today, um, but now you'll know I wasn't making it up because it's right here in the document. The word for remembrance, anamnesis, means the past becoming real in the present, which happens by the promise of Christ in the sacrament. So we are not recalling salvation history. We are not recalling the incarnation, the death of Christ, the, uh, God's confrontation with sin, suffering, and death on the cross and in the glories of his resurrection. We are actually partaking in them. We are sharing in them. I mean, if Christians understood this this much, we, we would be, our hearts would just be longing for the Lord's day so we could receive him again. And our hearts would break for those who were absent in the pews. And our hearts would long to see those who do not know this, to come to know this, that they too could receive Jesus in this way. Anamnesis. Verse 9, I mean, point 9, the presence of Christ in Holy Communion. We take Jesus at his word when he said, This is my body, this is my blood. Um, one time within the past year, I was talking to a, a priest who shared with me, um, he said, you know the genius of, of Thomas Cramner, the first Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation, the genius of it, of his writing, is that when you give out Holy Communion, um, you don't say, this is the body of Christ. You just say, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul unto everlasting life so that one can interpret that that means that the, the bread is, is or not, right? And that's part of the genius. And I thought to myself, number one, I think you're taking Cramner out of context, um, but even if not, I don't really care what Cramner said. Because Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood. So if Cramner meant something else than what Jesus meant, well, then he was wrong, right? That could even be true among the early church fathers, right? Perhaps even Gregory of Nyssa, but probably not, okay? Uh, <laughs> right? Um, none of the fathers spoke infallibly. We receive the mind of the fathers, Right? under the authority of Scripture. And Jesus said, this is my body. This is my blood. And I think that's the genius of Jesus, right? That's the genius of Jesus. Richard, were you going to say something? Oh, you were just, yeah, just in wonder because you remembered Gregory, yes, yes, Nisa. And the fans go wild, yes. <clears throat> so we take Jesus at his word. I, you've heard me preach this before in sermons. If I gave you my word about something, you, I would hope, would trust me that I will carry it through. Well, God has given us his word, his own son, Jesus Christ. And his word 
through the Holy Scriptures? Do we take him at his word? Yes. Yes. He has the words of everlasting life. We take Jesus at his word. St. Paul affirms this when he states, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? And that word participation, koinonia, meaning a most intimate communion. Some translations say, is it not a communion with? Some say a participation with. Others, a fellowship with. A paraphrase, a, more, a most intimate fellowship with. But he's saying the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia, a participation in the blood of Christ, the bread that we break? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? I mean, you've heard me say this um, once before in this course. If that's how Anglicans answered people when they said, said to us, do you believe that you know, the bread and wine is, is, is Christ Jesus? And we answered just the words of Scripture. The bread that we break is a koinonia with the body of Christ. The cup that we bless is a koinonia with the blood of Christ. Nothing further need be said, right? That is no ordinary bread and wine. It is a koinonia with the body and blood of Christ. And I'm going to say something strong. But when people read that and say, I don't believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. I believe it's symbolic. Uh, and, you know, and they quote this reformer or that reformer. I, I'm going to say, I'm sorry, your position, and this is not politically correct in this day and age, but your position is not biblical. Therefore, it is not true. The reason I'm right has nothing to do with me, what I'm teaching right now. The reason it's correct is because it's clearly biblical. Right? And it's what the early church fathers with one mind believed. That the bread that we break and the, blood, the cup that we bless is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus. And I also want to point out when do we bless the cup and when do we break the bread? On the altar. Right? On the altar. On the holy table. So we take Jesus at his word. This is my body, this is my blood. And then we hear Paul about koinonia. Verse 10, uh, point 10, Jesus Christ is present in both his divinity and humanity in the sacrament. In other words, we don't divvy up Jesus, right? Well, you're receiving only the divinity of Jesus. No. Jesus is one person, fully God, fully man, apart from sin. When you receive Jesus, you receive the totality of Jesus. Does that make sense to everyone? By Christ's promise and the power of the Holy Spirit, the body and blood of Jesus are present in the earthly elements of bread and wine. If I could, I would get point 10, along with 1 Corinthians 10, 16, printed up on t-shirts and hand them out to every Anglican in the world. So I'd need about 80 million t-shirts. Probably can get a discount at that level, yeah. And, and that's what it would say. It would, it would quote 1 Corinthians 10, 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a koinonia in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And then it would say, point number 10 from this document, as Bishop Charlie would say, way to go, right? Jesus Christ is present in both his divinity and humanity in the sacrament by Christ's promise and the power of the Holy Spirit the body and blood of Jesus are present in the earthly elements of bread and wine. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, remember, it's the Holy Spirit, 
that makes Jesus Christ a present reality for us today. And it's in Jesus that we come to know God as our Father. No Holy Spirit, no Jesus. No Jesus, no God the... No, N-O. God the Father. Right? Apart from the Holy Spirit, the Bible is just words. Apart from the Holy Spirit, baptismal waters are just water. Apart from the Holy Spirit, the bread and wine is just bread and wine. Apart from the Holy Spirit, healing oil is just cooking oil that someone's putting on your head. Right? Apart from the Holy Spirit, a priest is not a priest. Right? Um, apart from the Holy Spirit, there's no koinonia, there's no body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit makes Christ Jesus a present reality for us, and it's in him that we come to know God our Father. Point 11. The Holy Supper provides the sacramental presence of the crucified, risen, and glorified Jesus Christ. So you're getting, as it said earlier, the totality of his person and incarnation. <clears throat> the Lord's Supper has elements of mystery which the human mind is not able to comprehend fully. We do not presume to understand, nor are we able to explain how Christ gives himself to us in the bread and wine. We just know, as Peter said, Lord, you have the words of everlasting life. Where else are we going to go? Right? Remember, for the early church Christian, they weren't concerned so much. Take any element of mystery in our faith, the Trinity, or how the baby born in Bethlehem could be fully God and fully man. On one hand, sustaining the universe and is the one through whom his mother and foster father uh, came into being and is aware of even the animals around him and every heartbeat that they have. And is also aware of every sand, piece of sand on Mars. And any sand that may be on planets and other galaxies, right? And yet at the same time, was completely dependent upon his monster, mother and foster father for love, nourishment, protection. So they weren't like, well, how can that be? We have to understand it. They were just happy that through word and sacrament, they could share in the life of Jesus, who was both fully God and fully man apart from sin. They weren't um, preoccupied with comprehending the Trinity. They simply rejoiced that through word and sacrament, they could share in the life of the Holy Trinity, and that through the Spirit, they would know Jesus, and through Jesus, know the Father. While Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper is properly received by faith, Christ's body and blood through the sacrament is always a divine gift and not the result of human work. Sacraments are not the work of men. Sacraments are gifts of God within the new covenant. Okay? Should the unbaptized or the unbelieving receive the sacrament? They eat and drink to their detriment. As the Apostle Paul wrote, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, 1 Corinthians 11.29. While the Lord's Supper may be restricted for reasons of church discipline, it should not be restricted on the basis of perceptions regarding a person's faith or the individual's ability to articulate the faith according to an arbitrary standard. In other words, when you come forward to receive, I'm not going to say, uh, uh, articulate for me the basic doctrine of the Holy Trinity before I give you Holy Communion, right? If you can pass that test, then you can, right, you can have it. I mean, it, in other words, no, Lord, 
whatever faith is lacking, make it up within my heart that I may receive thee worthily. Right? Reception of the Lord's Supper does not depend upon a certain level of intellectual understanding. It's the faith of Christ within our hearts. It's it's not about our intellectual assent. Lastly, we agree that while reception of the body and blood of Christ in the Lord's Supper is personal, it is never private. You've heard me say this many times. I usually use the word individual. That Christ, the faith, etc., we are to receive it personally within us, but not individual, individually. We are brought into a family of God, the body of Christ, the church, the bride, and we are to receive all of that personally within us. But it's not just me and, and Jesus. When people talk like that, I don't know the Jesus they're talking about. And they say to me, my Jesus would never say something like that. Well, I don't know to whom you're speaking, right? But, right, we don't have, it's just me and Jesus. And this goes back to the Trinity. One God, and yet, in communion with one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the church must be. So it's never private. The Lord's Supper is the meal of unity for the baptized people of God who are united with the Lord and with one another as they receive his body and blood. They receive him by faith with joy and thanksgiving. I said lastly, there's actually two more points here. Fifteen. When Christians commune, that is receive, they are united with the church militant, that is the church on earth, the church that continues on its um, earthly pilgrimage, which by the way in church architecture is, is represented by the nave, this part of the church here. Okay. And the church triumphant, and I would say uh, maybe I'll explain this more fully sometime. The church in, uh, um, uh, anticipant, <laughs> uh, because the fullness of all things has not yet come in the second coming. Um, expectant, that's the word I'm looking for. Thank you, Deacon uh, Praveen, the church expectant. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of times that terminology is used by Roman Catholics to refer to those who are not quite fully in heaven and in purgatory and and this. But what I mean by it is those on this side of the second coming of Jesus who are in paradise, but not the new heaven and the new earth to come after the resurrection. Okay? Already one in the kingdom of God, although they say this here, not yet fully realized. In this sense, the Lord's Supper is truly a foretaste of the feast to come. And that I fully agree with. And I didn't mean to say I disagreed with the other. Um, We are already participating in the church triumphant. We're already participating in the resurrection of the dead on the last day. We're already participating in the, the, um, the benefits of the second coming of Christ. The church communes in hope, yearning and praying for that day when the redeemed gather at the marriage feast of the Lamb, Revelation 19.7. As you know, I'll hold up the Eucharist, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, the sacramental bread and sacramental wine, the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine. One thing I don't like is when people say um, bread and wine because that kind of... When people are speaking, you can't tell that they mean a capital B or a capital W, right? So I like either the sacrament or blessed sacrament or Christ's body and blood or the consecrated bread and the consecrated wine. Okay. Um, but I'll, I'll hold it up 
and I'll say, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him that taketh away the sin of the world. Happy are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right. Um, and then the, the bells ring, as it should be done in all churches. Now I'll get emails. In fact, um, in certain parts of the Eucharistic prayer, um, I have them toll the bell because the tolling of a bell marks something of great solemnity and often great sacrifice, right? If you think of like, you know, gee, these uh, um, people died on this date, we'll have the tolling of the bell. It will ring if there was 19 deaths, we'll ring it 19 times. And that great song, the Emmett Fitzgerald, it ends with, they ring the bell 29, was it 29? 29 times uh, for the men on, on the Emmett Fitzgerald. Um, so tolling of the bell marks moments of great solemnity and sacrifice. The ringing of bells it sends a different signal of celebration. And the Mass is both a participation in the one sacrifice of Christ and therefore should be marked with both great solemnity. Do this in remembrance of me. Dong. And great celebration. Happy are they who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ding, 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 ding. So when people say, you use bells in your Anglican church? I say, not only do we use bells, we use different kinds of bells. Some to mark moments of great solemnity and sacrifice, and others to proclaim the, the wedding banquet and the great joy. I mean, every Eucharist is a, is a contradiction, not a contradiction of emotions. Um, what's the phrase I'm looking for? But it's... Um, you know, there's those moments of great solemnity and sacrifice and then also uh, in our unworthiness and yet on the other hand, the great joy of God's victory that we're partaking of in the celebration. As the community, last point, as the community of believers communes, they are making a public witness to the world and to the faith of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church.